Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is September 20th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is You Don't Have to Act That Way, TNK for Acute Ischemic Stroke. And our guest skeptic is Professor Daniel Fadovich. He is an emergency physician and clinical researcher based at the Royal Perth Hospital, Western Australia. He is the head of the Center for Clinical Research in Emergency Medicine, Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research, and also a professor of emergency medicine at the University of Western Australia and director of research for East Metropolitan Health Service. Welcome back to the SGEM, Daniel. Uh, thanks, Ken. And it's wonderful to be back. I really uh, love these sessions that we do, and I always learn from them. Well, let's dive right in, and you can give us a case. Okay. A 74-year-old man arrives from home by private vehicle, complaining of right-sided weakness and dysarthria, beginning two hours prior to arrival. Advanced neuroimaging demonstrates no bleed and no large vessel occlusion. His NIHSS score is calculated to be 10, and he has no absolute contraindications for systemic thrombolysis. Well, Daniel, a lot has happened since you were on the SGEM last time discussing stroke. This includes the Cadeth report on thrombolysis by Altaplase for acute ischemic stroke, which was published recently. And there was a follow-up letter to the editor from some neurologists expressing their serious concerns about the report. And also the neurologist, Dr. Ravi Garg, was on an SGEM Extra discussing his publication analyzing the 1995 NIN study. He showed that the study had a high risk of selection bias. Dr. Garg concluded that the baseline imbalances observed in the NIN study were more likely due to randomization errors than random chance. His advice was that treatment decisions and guideline recommendations based on the original treatment effect reported in the NIN's TPA study should be done cautiously. And we also had stroke neurologist Dr. Jeff Saver on another SGEM Extra discussing his systematic review and meta-analysis using the Fragility Index. He holds a much different interpretation of the stroke literature than his colleague Dr. Garg. The conclusions to Dr. Saver's publication was that intravenous alteplase, given within three hours of symptom onset for acute ischemic stroke, is one of the most robustly proven therapies in medicine. Besides the disagreement about the strength of evidence for TPA, there are challenges with administering this medication. It involves giving an infusion of 0.9 milligrams per kilogram IV to a maximum dose of 90 milligrams. The infusion starts with 10% of the total dose given as a bolus administered uh, in one minute. The remaining amount is infused over 60 minutes. Tenecteplase is a genetically modified variant of alteplase with greater fibrin specificity, said to be 15-fold higher, and a longer plasma half-life, 22 minutes versus 3.5 minutes. Because of its ease of use as a single bolus, 
and more favorable benefit to risk profile, it is preferred over alteplase as the fibrinolytic agent of choice for acute myocardial infarction. All right, with that background information, let's get to the clinical question for today's episode. So today's clinical question is, is tenecteplase non-inferior to alteplase in treating acute ischemic stroke? Ah, it's right there in the clinical question, non-inferiority. I know my good friend, Dr. Justin Morgenstern, has some strong thoughts about non-inferiority studies. All right, Daniel, what's the reference, though? The reference is Menon et al., intravenous tenecteplase compared with alteplase for acute ischemic stroke in Canada, and it's abbreviated as the ACT study, a pragmatic, multi-center, open-label, registry-linked, randomized, controlled, non-inferiority trial from The Lancet this year. All right, let's talk about the PCOT. What was the population in this study? The population were adult patients aged 18 years and older with an ischemic stroke who met eligibility criteria for alteplase, which essentially is ischemic stroke causing disabling neurologic deficit within 4.5 hours of onset. Patients eligible for endovascular thrombectomy in addition to intravenous thrombolysis, were eligible for an enrolment, and this was across 22 stroke centres. And they excluded those who had standard contraindications to IV thrombolysis. What was the intervention? The intervention was tenecteplase 0.25 milligram per kilogram bolus. And what did they compare it to? Alteplase 0.09 milligram per kilogram bolus plus 60-minute infusion, total 0.9 milligrams per kilogram. All right, let's run through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? The proportion uh, of patients with a modified Rankin score of 0 to 1 at 90 days up to 120 days. All right, and how about the secondary outcomes? There's a big list of secondary outcomes, and we've got them in the show notes. All right. And what about the type of trial? So this was an investigator-initiated, multi-center, parallel group, open-label, registry-linked, randomized controlled trial with a blinded outcome assessment. Yeah, and I think you already mentioned that it was done in 22 stroke centers. And so the authors and researchers should be commended because it's difficult to do a multi-center trial like this. Regardless of what the results are, they should be congratulated on designing, getting this thing up and running, gathering all the results, and then putting it together and getting it published. I totally agree. It's, It's a lot of hard work. So the author's conclusions were, quote, Intravenous tenecteplase at 0.25 milligrams per kilogram is a reasonable alternative to alteplase for all patients presenting with acute ischemic stroke who meet standard criteria for thrombolysis. End of quote. All right, now we're going to go through the quality checklist for randomized clinical trials. Ready to go, Daniel? Yep. First question. The study population included or focused on those in the emergency department? 
Yes. And the patients, were they adequately randomized? Yes. Was the randomization process concealed? Yes. And the patients, were they analyzed into the groups to which they were randomized? Yes. The study patients were recruited consecutively, i.e. no selection bias? No. The study began in December 2019 and was impacted by COVID, plus some of the physicians were not available to enrol patients and they had staffing concerns which restricted enrolment times. All right, the sixth question. The patients in both groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? No. The main prognostic factor is baseline stroke severity. So an NIHSS stroke score of less than eight was in 40.5% of the tenecteplase group and 38.4% in the alteplase group. And this difference was 2.1%, which equaled the unadjusted difference in the primary outcome. All participants, that means the patients, clinicians, outcome assessors, were they unaware of group allocation? No, it was open label. All groups were treated equally except for the intervention? Yes. Was the follow-up complete? Yes. All patient important outcomes were considered? No, safety outcomes were restricted to within 24 hours of thrombolysis. The treatment effect was at large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? No. And how about financial conflicts of interest? Yes, some authors uh, reported a relationship to the manufacturer. All right, that's it for the quality checklist. Let's talk about the results. They recruited almost 1,600 patients into this trial. The median age was 74 years and 48% were female. The median baseline NIHSS score was 10. What was the key result? The key result was that tenecteplase was non-inferior to alteplase in stroke patients treated within 4.5 hours of symptom onset. And for that primary outcome, it was having a modified rank and scale score of 0 to 1, somewhere between 90 and 120 days. What did they actually find? So the numbers were 36.9% in the tenecteplase group versus 34.8% in the alteplase group. And so that gave you an unadjusted risk difference of 2.1%. And that comes with a 95% confidence interval of minus 2.6 to 6.9. And that lower bound 95% confidence interval of the difference in primary outcome, minus 2.6%, was greater than the minus 5%, thus met the pre-specified non-inferiority threshold. All right, that's the primary outcome. How about the secondary outcomes? There's a lot of secondary outcomes, and uh, the detail of that will be in the show notes. It's time to talk a little nerdy. And we've got five points to go through, and I'm going to start this off with the fact that this was an open-label study. 
And open label studies can advantage the new intervention. Blinding treatment allocation is a fundamental element of reducing bias in clinical trials. The trial participants and clinicians were not blinded to the treatment allocation in ACT. Therefore, the trial was liable to ascertainment bias, something referred to as detection bias. Ascertainment bias is the systematic distortion of the assessment of outcome measures by the investigators or trial participants because they were aware of treatment allocation. It results in an exaggerated difference between the treatments in outcome. So knowledge of the treatment may influence the way in which staff and investigators manage patients during the study and influence the perspectives of patients. Previous studies have attempted to quantify this. Schultz et al. in 1995 report that odds ratios were exaggerated by 41% for inadequately concealed trials. Noonan in 2018 reports it can overestimate effect size by up to 30 to 40%. Using blinded outcome assessments is an attempt to ameliorate this bias. However, the modified Rankine scale, despite its widespread use as an outcome instrument, shows a wide inter-rater variability that adds to the uncertainty. Bias becomes a critical problem in any open-label or poorly-blinded trial of thrombolysis. Considering this bias might lead one to conclude that tenecteplase is not non-inferior to alteplase. All right, the second nerdy point was about comparisons to other studies. When you go back to 1995 and you look at the NINS part two, and that was alteplase given within three hours of symptom onset, a modified Rankine scale score of zero to one was reported as 26% in the placebo group and 39% in the alteplase group. Some argue the results reflected placebo doing badly rather than alteplase doing good. In ECAS 3, and that was treatment with alteplase between three and four and a half hours of last seen well, the original report for the modified Rankine scale score of zero to one was 45.2% in the placebo group and 52.4% in the alteplase group. Now, subsequent reanalyses of these two foundational trials report different results. NINS is thought to be due to baseline imbalances in stroke severity favoring alteplase. And in ECAS-3, the reanalysis by Alper et al. concluded, quote, reanalysis of the ECAS-3 trial data with multiple approaches adjusting for baseline imbalances does not support any significant benefit and continues to support harm for the use of alteplase three to 4.5 hours after stroke onset. Clinicians, patients, and policymakers should reconsider interpretation and decisions regarding management of acute stroke that were based on ECAS-3 results. And Ken, it's also worth adding in that uh, the NINS study likely had errors 
in their randomization process, as Ravi Garg has pointed out. In the ACT open label study uh, that we're discussing today, they report 36.9% in the tenecteplase group versus 34.8% in the alteplase group to get a modified Rankine score of 0 to 1, which is obviously for all patients within four and a half hours. It's kind of a combination of NINs and ECAS-3. Now, obviously, comparing results between studies is problematic due to unknown confounders. Also, NINs was published in 1995 and ECAS-3 in 2008. Stroke care has evolved over time, and one would have thought that the ACT result would be much better than the approximately 35% result they got, which is a long way short of placebo in ECAS-3, which is which was 45.2%. Yeah, that's that's an interesting look because that's a 10% difference, isn't it? You know, in ACT, they got 35% having a good outcome, and yet the placebo group in ECAS-3, and remember, ECAS-3 didn't include people under three hours. So these are people that had had stroke symptoms for more than three hours, and the placebo group had that good outcome, that modified rank and scale score of zero to one of 45%. So that's a bit strange, isn't it? Yes, it's it's really strange. It may be related to the um, time is brain hypothesis. In the time is brain hypothesis, the earlier you give it is better. E- ECAS-3 is, is kind of at the end, end section of, of the time interval. So you would think that would do worse than in the first three hours. And those numbers don't reflect that. It wouldn't support the time is brain hypothesis. No. All right. The third nerdy point we wanted to talk about was the outcome measure. The outcome in this study was the standardized modified rank and scale score obtained by telephone interview. Now, there are problems with the inter-rater reliability of the modified rank and scale. Scoring of the modified rank and scale, even by neurologists, is only moderately reliable at best when done face-to-face. Now, Quinn, in 2009, reviewed 10 studies and reported the overall reliability of the modified rank and scale score had a kappa of 0.46, which is moderate. And so they concluded, quote, there remains uncertainty regarding the modified rank and scale reliability. In the ACTS study, the modified rank and scale scores were obtained through standardized telephone interviews masked to treatment allocation. It is likely that the kappa for a telephone assessment of the modified rank and scale score is even worse which threatens the reliability and the validity of the outcome measure. It is noteworthy that studies with larger numbers of patients reported poorer reliability of the modified rank and scale score. In the SGEM Extra, here comes the NINs again, with the neurologist Dr. Ravi Garg, he outlined that the inter-rater reliability of the modified rank and scale score was lowest at the junction of 0 to 1, good outcome, and two to six, bad outcome, leading to what he referred to as, quote, end point wobble. 
So the investigators in this ACT study used the Rankin Focused Assessment, RFA instrument. And the RFA consists of a four-page form accompanied by a five-page instruction sheet. And they used it via blinded, trained research coordinators. Now, the supportive citation on the RFA concludes it, quote, yields high interrater reliability. But this, this was based upon a study of only 50 patients of whom seven had died by age by day 90. Now, there were several limitations to this small study, including that all assessors were from a single trial group and the study did not compare in the same patients modified Rankin scale scores obtained with the RFA and scores obtained with any of the current common methods of scoring. So in this RFA study, assessments were done in person and not by telephone, as was done in the ACT study. That brings us to the fourth nerdy point, and this is about baseline imbalance. A strong predictor of how someone will do after a stroke is how bad their symptoms were at presentation. There was a baseline imbalance in stroke severity in NINS and ECAS-3 that favored the Alteplase group and could explain the results. This baseline imbalance in stroke severity is a recurring problem in stroke clinical trials and also occurred in the studies of factor 7 for intracranial hemorrhage. In this trial, the ACTS trial, NIHSS less than 8 was 40.5% in the tenecteplase group and 38.4% in the alteplase group. This difference was 2.1%, and it actually equaled the unadjusted difference in the primary outcome. So these small differences might be enough to influence the final result. It is also worth highlighting that ACT did not seem to have tracked the rates of stroke mimics. And the final nerdy point... I've called human behavior and history repeating. Giving a stat dose of tenecteplase is much simpler and much more appealing than setting up an alteplase infusion. Human behavior is such that we gravitate towards what's simpler and easier. I remember when tenecteplase became approved for acute myocardial infarction thrombolysis. Everyone virtually rejoiced because it was so much easier. So people will use the ACT result to promote easier thrombolysis, despite our scepticism. The paper also says that some national guideline committees have endorsed tenecteplase already for patients with intracranial large vessel occlusions eligible for thrombectomy. Well, that's enough nerdy talk. It's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. We are sceptical of the author's conclusion. All right, how about the SGEM bottom line? We remain sceptical about thrombolysis for acute ischemic stroke, whether it is done with alteplase or tenecteplase. Well, Daniel, can you resolve the case you presented at the beginning of the podcast? So the stroke team arrives and confirms that the NIHSS score and the lack of any contraindications to thrombolysis 
they proceed to have a discussion about the potential benefits and potential harms of thrombolysis while you return to managing the rest of the busy emergency department. And so how do you think we should take this new study, this ACT study, this non-inferiority study, comparing tenecteplase to alteplase, and how do you think we should apply it clinically? Well, the Achilles heel of this trial is the a priori assumption that alteplase is an effective treatment for acute ischemic stroke. If you accept that claim, then you can conclude it is reasonable to use tenecteplase. If you do not accept the claim, then tenecteplase has not been demonstrated to be superior to placebo and would not necessarily be reasonable. And so what are you going to tell the patient or the patient's family? So your symptoms are caused by a stroke, which is typically caused by a blockage in a brain artery. You're going to meet the stroke team who will offer you a treatment to break up the clot, and you may even have heard of it. They will tell you why you should have it. They believe it is a good therapy and tend to be very enthusiastic as they, as they believe it increases the chances of a better outcome. However, it's important to know that not everyone agrees, it's controversial, and many specialists say it's not useful. There's no evidence that it saves lives, but it increases the chances of dying. So you need to decide what to do. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and last week's winner was... And I don't have a winner. The question was way too hard. So what's the question this week? What mammalian cell line was tenecteplase developed in? Oh, so if you know the mammalian cell line, then send an email to the sjam at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line, and the person with the first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, thank you, Daniel, for coming back on the SGEM, season number 11, and talking nerdy with me. I love it every single time, Ken. Thank, thanks again for the opportunity. All right. And if you could just finish the episode with reading the SGEM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it from the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Yeah.